Today I'm going to talk about Islam, Muhammad the prophet, terrorism, Roman Catholicism, the Pope, Protestantism, John Calvin, religious intolerance, and the mark of the beast. But before I do so, it is my great privilege and my pleasure and my joy to welcome here today my wife, Beverly. A young teacher asked her class to write a poem for their homework. The next day as she was marking the class, she asked young Jason to come up to her table where she spoke to him very quietly and said, Jason, this poem is very bad. It's full of errors in English and also it's in bad taste. I'm afraid I'll have to write a note to your father. To which Jason replied, please miss, I don't think that will help much. He wrote it. <laughs> Obviously Jason's dad hadn't reached his full potential in English. Now one of the most common problems in our society is that many of us don't reach our full potential. Take a look at these buds. Aren't they gorgeous? Now say you've had some, well, a little smaller perhaps, and you put them on your dining room table. You watered them, and you expect in a two or three days that they will blossom into this magnificent creation. But on the sixth or seventh day, you come back and you look at them, and they're still buds. And you say to them, what's the matter with you? I've watered you. I've fed you, I've even talked to you, why don't you blossom? Now to those of us who are adults, in God's sight, does your life, does my life, still look like a bud? We know that God wants all of us to blossom and to reach our full potential, not only for our own blessing, but also to be more effective in blessing others. Someone might be saying, well, you don't know where I've come from. I've had a hard life. Well, friends, we've all had hard times, haven't we? And many of us have been in hard places. And some of us are there even now. But it doesn't pay to have a self-pity party. I know because I've had a few of them myself and they're no fun because no one else turns up and there's never any refreshments. So it's rather dull. But God wants us to grow into our full potential. And I want to tell you the story of a wonderful woman who could have had a lifelong pity party, but she didn't. She lost her sight and hearing just before she turned two. She became a wild, rebellious, uncontrolled youngster until a nearly blind teacher was attracted to the challenge of teaching her. Under her teacher's direction, this little girl learned to read and write. She attended Radcliffe College and in addition to studying French and Greek, she learned to type her papers and assignments in a braille-keyed typewriter. At 21, she published her life story and became a public phenomenon, yet misunderstood by the masses. Some believed she possessed mysterious powers, while others thought she was just mysterious. Yet through it all, she remained dignified, excited about life, and compassionate toward the needs of others. This incredible young woman became an activist who pushed for change. She promoted peace and raised funds for the American Foundation for the Blind. And during the First and Second World Wars, she and her companions committed themselves to brightening the spirits of wounded soldiers. Many of them had lost their sight and their hearing in the war. Although living in a world of silence and darkness, Helen Keller refused to let a disability stand in the way of her potential. She altered people's views of individuals with disabilities. And it doesn't seem possible to reflect on Helen Keller's life without getting excited about our own potential. Yes, Helen Keller could have stayed like an unopened rosebud. No one would have blamed her. But instead, under the care and love of a very wonderful teacher, and because of her own personal decision, she blossomed and she became the very best she could be. And what a blessing she was to the world. 
May God help us not to stop growing. And instead, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and this word, may we blossom and become everything that God wants us to be. Islam, what does Islam really teach? The prophet Muhammad, was he a man of peace? We're going to answer those questions today. Also, the papacy, the pope, the Russian Orthodox Church, Protestantism. We're going to talk today about religious intolerance and persecution of others. And also, the mark of the beast. Firstly, let me talk to you about Islam and the teachings of the prophet. Our highly esteemed president, George Bush, has made the statement that Islam is a religion of peace and the terrorists, just a small band of strange fanatics, have hijacked one of the world's greatest religions. But really, Islam is a wonderful, wonderful religion. Today we're going to see what does Islam really teach. But right now I want to compare the teachings of the prophet Muhammad with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 to 55. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 down to 55. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 and onwards. This is a story about Jesus. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Some other manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, says in the margin of my Bible, uh, add this, and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I want you to know today that the religion of Jesus has never persecuted a single soul. The religion of Jesus has never put to death a single person. Jesus was not a prophet at the head of a great army to coerce people to accept what he believed. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save lives. I want you to come over here to uh, Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 43 and 44, I believe it is. Matthew 5, verse 43 and onwards, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then if you come back to verse 38 and onwards, 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I want to say it again. The religion of Jesus has never persecuted a single solitary soul. Jesus 
I emphasize, was not a warrior prophet at the head of an army. On one occasion, our Lord said, just before he was crucified, he said to the Roman governor, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my disciples fight. So he said that his disciples would not fight for the establishment of the kingdom of God. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. On another occasion, just a little while before, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter, because he loved his Lord more than anything, pulled out a sword. And Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Muhammad, the leader of the Muslims, did not ever say put up the sword. He said take out the sword and strike down the infidels. Muhammad, the prophet, was born around 570 AD. The year 610 or thereabouts, he had a vision he believed from God while he was in a cave. He went out to teach pure monotheism, the doctrine of the unity of God. He also taught that a man was saved not by the grace of God through faith alone, as the Bible teaches, but he taught that a man was saved by his good deeds. Muhammad taught the doctrine of the last judgment. He also believed in the lake of fire where the infidels were going to be thrown. He also taught paradise for the faithful. Something that many people are not aware of, Muhammad believed that Jesus was a great prophet, but certainly not the son of God. And he taught, as the Quran teaches, the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 627 AD, Muhammad led an army of his disciples and in one day they massacred 600 Jews. Muhammad, to his dying breath, strongly believed in exterminating the infidels who did not confess the ideas that he believed that God had given to him. I believe that the president is doing a marvelous job to set a new tone in this land. He needs our prayers. But many disagree with him as far as Islam is concerned. And when I read you these statements from Islam, you'll understand why we do not believe that all religions are the same. To the very end of his life, Muhammad strongly believed in exterminating the infidels, that is the idolaters, Christians and Jews who did not embrace Islam. I'm indebted to my friend Dr. Samuel Bakiaki for much of this material. Among his last utterances were, the Lord destroy the Jews and Christians. Let his anger be kindled against those who turn the tombs of their prophets into places of worship. Let, let there not remain any faith but that of Islam. He said, the sword is the key of heaven and hell. A drop of blood shed in the cause of Allah. A night spent in arms is of more avail than two months of fasting or prayer. Whoever falls in battle, his sins are forgiven. And at the day of judgment, his limbs shall be supplied by the wings of angels and cherubims. The battle cry of Muhammad's successors, known as caliphs, has been, before you is paradise, behind you, are death and hell. The Quran teaches, and I quote the Quran, the holy book of Islam, fight and slay the pagans, that is those who do not embrace Islam, wherever ye find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, 
and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. According to the holy book, the Quran, those who resist Islam shall be put to death or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off on alternate sides. The Quran says, believers, take neither Jews or Christians for your friends. They are friends with one another. Whoever of you seeks their friendship shall become one of their number. Allah does not guide the wrongdoers. And Samuel Bakayaki makes the observation, and it is beyond dispute. Throughout the centuries, devout Muslims have followed the dictates of the Quran by systematically eliminating the presence of pagans, Jews, and Christians from the territories they conquered. Those who dispute this historical fact only need to look, for example, at the map of North America, North Africa. Fortunately, not North America. They would wish that that were so too. Wherever Islam has gone, the Christian church has been destroyed. I've gone through all of the Muslim countries. None of them know much about freedom of religion or freedom of speech. We talk about the Bible lands. That's almost a cause of laughter and derision because the Bible lands have very, very few people who believe in the Bible anymore. You know why? Because the believers in Jesus and the Bible were driven out of those lands and exterminated. And so to say that this is a great religion that has been hijacked by just a small group of terrorists is not to tell all of the truth. Now, some folks will quickly raise an objection and they'll say, but it is also true that there are millions of Muslims who are full of peace. It's true. This carpet upon which I'm standing today was installed by a Muslim friend of mine. My house was carpeted by the same Muslim company. When I was in Jordan some time back, I was talking to the pastor who was in charge of our work there. He told me the wonderful story of King Hussein. This pastor's home was blown up by terrorists for the simple reason that he was a Christian. His legs were broken, they were burned. I believe that his daughter was, was killed. And he was taken to the hospital in Amman. And when he became conscious, there was a man standing beside his bed. It was the king, King Hussein. God bless his memory. He said, I'm covered with shame that you as a Christian should be treated in this way. And he took care of all of their medical expenses and he restored their house to them. He was a man of peace. But listen carefully. Those who practice the Quran are not like King Hussein. There are millions of Muslims today who are secularists. Just as there are millions of Christians who don't follow the Bible and who are purely secularists, but if you ask them, what is your religion? They'll say, I'm a Christian. They don't even know what's inside the Bible and they don't practice the teachings of the Bible. And there are millions of Muslims who are Muslims only in name who do love God but do not practice the teachings of the Quran. Such a state is, is Turkey. Turkey is not an Islamic fundamentalistic state. Church and state are clearly separate and there is a great deal of freedom and toleration in Turkey because the people there are secular. They do not follow 
the teachings of the Quran. Thanks be to God. But go to one of America's greatest allies, Saudi Arabia, where in the last 10 years, hundreds of people have been beheaded. What happens to a Muslim in Saudi Arabia who says, I believe that Jesus is Lord? He is beheaded. I have been to Iraq where there is limited freedom. I have preached in Iraq. I have preached in Jordan. I have preached in, in Egypt. And those countries have more religious liberty than Saudi Arabia. But where people follow the Quran with a greater faithfulness, you have a greater intolerance. The teachings of the Quran and the teachings of Jesus are light years apart. I want to read to you from a very excellent book that everybody who is interested in getting the facts ought to read. And this book is called The Clash of Civilizations. It is a national bestseller. It is written by Samuel Huntington. It comes with a recommendation by Henry Kissinger. This book is not written by a novice. The Clash of Civilizations, he says. Some Westerners, this book was written in 1995 when President Clinton was in the White House. Some Westerners, including President Bill Clinton, and we could say President George Bush, have argued that the West does not have problems with Islam, but only with violent Islamic extremists. 1,400 years of history demonstrate otherwise. The relations between Islam and Christianity, both Orthodox and Western, have often been stormy. Each has been the other's other. The 20th century conflict between liberal democracy and Marxist-Leninism is only a fleeting and superficial historical phenomenon compared to the continuing and deeply conflictual relations between Islam and Christianity. There was a time when Islam was the greatest power in the world. The greatest scientists and the greatest educators and the greatest physicians and the greatest armies in the world, they conquered Russia. They conquered Spain for hundreds of years. They almost took over the entire world because Islam has a policy and a mission and that is to spread the teachings of Islam around the world. But Islam has come on bad times. Mainly the people in Islamic countries are uneducated on the whole and very, very poor and they live in dreadful circumstances. And the idea of going to heaven because you're a martyr is intensely appealing. Islam today, disgruntled, discouraged, and angry, looks at the great Satan, the United States of America, filled with thoughts of envy to dismiss the terrorists as simply being on the fringe, fringe of Islamic society is not historically true. The teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the prophet Muhammad are light years apart. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, get rid of the sword. Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy, I've come to save. But the Quran says, destroy the Christians, destroy the Jews, destroy those who will not convert. Here is a letter from a Muslim, written to Philip Yancey. This was printed in Christianity Today. He writes, this Muslim, you know we got a letter from a Muslim just recently who's been watching our program in Saudi Arabia. God bless him. 
and we've sent him a stack of material, may he get it. And may he not be beheaded. Let me tell you folks something. The nation of Islam in America demands and accepts what they will not give when they're in control. So in this country, and we say, this is the greatness of our system. We have many mosques, and we're glad that we do. That's how it ought to be. But there are no Christian churches in many of those Islam countries. How many Christian churches do you find in Saudi Arabia? Well, there are thousands and thousands of American soldiers there defending Saudi Arabia against other Islamics. You know how many churches? None. If you open a church in Saudi, no, you don't open a church. You get your head chopped off. But of course, we believe in freedom. They do not understand what freedom is. Muhammad had no idea about freedom. He says, this man, this Muslim seeker, but the most painful discovery for me about the Islamic faith has been its concept of militancy. I always used to think that these fanatics were just misguided people who give Islam a bad name. To be sure, Islam does not permit the killing of innocent women and children. But as I have found out, its teachings are quite different from those of Jesus who wants you to turn the other cheek. As I now know, violence does have a strong precedent in Islam. You better believe it. He's thinking of becoming a Christian. My mum is so distressed. She has been pleading with me not to abandon my faith. I love her so much, but how can I force my heart to believe in something that just doesn't seem right? I still have a lot of questions about Christian beliefs, but I know that if I decide to convert, I will be causing an immense amount of heartbreak. I would be ostracized by all my relatives. Also, my legal status in this country expires next year. And considering my views about Islam now and my sympathetic and favorable views about the Christian faith, I can't imagine going back to Pakistan. Where just a few months ago, a group of Christians were worshiping in a Christian church in Pakistan where they do allow churches and a group of Muslims broke into the church and there were little children playing in the courtyard this high. They were machine gunned down. The pastor was shot down. Women and children singing hymns died recently in Pakistan, October 28th, the year 2001. And what I want you all to know is this. What I'm telling you is not politically correct, but today it's very hard to be morally correct and politically correct at the same time. Political correctness is a term that is used by some people for their own political agenda. Somebody told me today, as I came into the church, Pastor Matiko told me, he said, did you know on some campuses of some of the great universities in America, they're not allowed to fly the flag? Because the flag of the United States of America is politically incorrect. Did you know that the firemen cannot drive into Berkeley in San Francisco, which is very politically correct? They can't drive onto the campus there showing the American flag. I am scandalized and offended by such an attitude. We fly the flag outside this church and we're proud to do so, aren't you? Now, political correctness is generally not the truth. Now, what I'm going to tell you is politically incorrect, but it's the truth. Today, Muslim, millions of Muslims who believe fanatically, no, not fanatically, who believe 
wholeheartedly in the teachings of the prophet Muhammad and who believe in the truthfulness of their scriptures, millions of them are ready to commit acts of terror. Millions. Now, some in this great country have naively assumed that if we catch bin Laden and some of the leaders of his group, it's going to be over. No. Where one is cut down, a thousand will stand up because they have a mission. And the history of the last 1,500 years tells us that they're on the march. And their teachings are a million light years from what we believe. Jesus was the champion of freedom. Jesus was the champion of freedom. I am glad that America with her great flag was founded by the followers of Jesus and not by the followers of Muhammad because none of us would be sitting here today. Jesus was the champion of freedom. He said, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. Now I'm going to go somewhere else in this talk. Some will get uncomfortable now. Jesus was the champion of freedom, but not all who claimed to follow him walked in his steps. So-called Christians have carried out acts of terrorism every bit as bad as bin Laden. Did you know that? Well, let me tell you the facts of history. The Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages carried out dreadful acts of terrorism. Crusades against the Muslims started in 1095. Against the Muslims. The Crusaders called themselves soldiers of Christ. They were terrorists. The Crusaders, with the blessing of the Pope, raped, destroyed, murdered, because the Pope said, if you do these things, your sins will be forgiven and you will go to paradise. That's exactly the same as what the Muslims say. And so the Crusaders went out and they attacked the Arabs and they attacked the followers of the prophet. Killed them like flies. The Catholic Church, this is an historical fact. The Catholic Church was only getting warmed up. The Crusades against is Islam were only a, pre, a prelude to the Roman Catholic Crusades against the Protestant heretics. The Waldenses, the Albigenses, and the Huguenots and many, many, many other types of people who did not tow the party line. Some years ago, I was going through the Vatican to look. I've been there many times. Greatest building in the world. Went into the Sistine Chapel. I wanted to get inside the room where the Pope is elected. You can't get there. But by the grace of God, I did get there. And on, by the grace of God, and just a little gift here and there. And on the wall of this chapel, in the Sistine Chapel, is a picture of the St. Bartholomew Massacre. This, the Pope's own soldiers killing people by the thousands and throwing their bodies out in the streets. The Seine River was so blocked by Roman Catholic terrorists that the river could hardly flow. It didn't happen once. It happened thousands and thousands of times. It was a part of Roman Catholic philosophy. Uh, when I was over in Rome, I also went into the church of the Jesuits. And in the church of the Jesuits, you have Ignatius Loyola trampling underfoot, crushing to death an accursed Protestant. 
And then there is a picture too of this woman and it's called the faith cast down the heresy. I've got pictures of this. In one hand she holds a cross because she's a crusader. In the other hand she's got a flaming torch. That's the Inquisition. Beneath her feet you have Martin Luther and John Huss and John Calvin. Faith casts down the heresy. More recently, the present Pope apologized for the atrocities of the past. He said these were terrible, awful crimes against humanity and the Pope should be commended for his apology. It would be a nice thing if he also took down the statues. Or if he placed beneath the statues a little plaque that said, we the Catholic Church repudiate this terrorism. And promise never to do the same again. The Bible says he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And listen to me. The religion of Jesus has never persecuted a single soul. That was not the religion of Jesus. The spirit of persecution is the spirit of Antichrist. About the most influential Roman Catholic scholar was Thomas Aquinas. He said, and I'm indebted to Dr. Sam Bakayoki for this statement. With regard to heretics, two points must be observed. One on their own side and the other on the side of the church. On their own side, there is a sin whereby they deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also to be severed from the world by death. For it is a much graver matter to corrupt the faith that which quickens the soul than to forge money which supports the temporal life. Therefore, if forger of money and other evildoers are forthwith condemned to death by the secular authority, much more reason is there for heretics, as soon as they are convicted of heresy, to be not only excommunicated, but put to death. Sam Bakayaki says, and rightly so, it is hard to believe that church leaders who should have represented Christ's love and compassion revealed instead their cold heartlessness by inflicting pitiless penalties on harmless people whose only guilt was that of following the dictates of their conscience rather than the directives of an apostate church. The cold-heartedness in which church leaders suppress dissenters can be seen also in some of the paintings and sculptures of the time which I've referred to because I've seen them. And so so-called Christians and I emphasize so-called Christians have persecuted every bit as much as the Muslims. But remember, the religion of Jesus never persecuted a single soul. You can't find anything in the words of Jesus that justified these acts of terrorism by so-called Christians. But you can find plenty in the Quran. Jesus was not a prophet leading an army. Jesus was the Lamb of God. And there's a lot of difference. Now I'm a Protestant. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Let me tell you a little bit about some of the Protestants. There was a great Protestant reformer who believed in predestination and also believed in eternally burning hell. He believed that God had predetermined from all eternity that certain people were going to be thrown into burning hell. He wrote some very good things and he did some very bad things. Uh, there was in that part of the world a scientist, a great doctor whose name was Servetus. He was a great scholar. He was captured by the soldiers of John Calvin, the great Protestant preacher. This man was going out to heal the sick but he did not have the same idea of the Trinity that we have. John Calvin presided over his trial, decreed that he should be put to death by burning, and when they burned him, they used green wood. John Calvin said, green wood with some sulfur so he'll burn longer. 
But let me tell you, the religion of Jesus has never persecuted a single soul. Calvin burned him at the stakes, 27th of October, 1553. He'd had a good teacher. He'd been taught by the Catholic Church. That's where he got it from. Now, the Orthodox Church today in Russia is one of the most persecuting organizations in the world. I've taken meetings in Russia, and the hall has been surrounded by mobs of Orthodox priests crying for my blood. And they would have had my blood except by the grace of God and the governor. The Orthodox Church, even in our own time, puts people to death, including Roman Catholics whom they hate. The Orthodox Church believes in freedom of religion for themselves, nobody else. What should we think about this? Let me tell you something. Never forget this, my Protestant friends. Protestant flesh is just as heartless and just as cruel as Muslim flesh and Catholic flesh when the love of God is absent. So don't think that somehow innately we're a lot better than those great sinners. We are capable of the same sins, but for the grace of God. Come over here to John chapter 14 and verse 15 to the words of our Lord. Now, some of you may not like what I've said today, but that's not my problem, that's yours, because this is the truth. John 14 and verse 15. And I don't wish to offend any of you, but I'd rather offend you than offend God, because it's the truth. And if I'm wrong, show me where I'm wrong. I've got history on my side. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's the force in Christianity, love. Come to chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. There is one thing that you and I can do. Listen carefully to this. You and I can, ought to, and shall renounce all forms of coercion. We will say we will never, never persecute people. Nobody should ever be subject to any form of coercion as far as the claims of Christ are concerned. The only reason that I should accept Jesus is because I love him. And when we go forth to preach the gospel to the world, the only force must be the force of persuasion that comes from a heart that is bursting with the love of God. Not the sword, but the love of God. It is quite an idea that Bible prophecy teaches that in the last days, we're going to have the rise of the most intolerant powers that the world has ever seen. Take your Bible and come over here to John 16, verses 1 to 3. John 16, verses 1 to 3. And this applies to the days of Jesus and to the last days. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. It is a tragedy that after our Lord's death, the Jewish people turned and persecuted the Christians. 
The Pharisees persecuted the Christians. Then when the Christians got the power, they persecuted the Jews. Persecution can only exist in a heart where the love of God has been expelled. Now come over now to the book of Revelation, please. I want you to notice this last day prophecy. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15 and onwards. Speaking of the last days, the Bible says, He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone. You see, he forced. God never forces anybody. God doesn't force you to come to church. He doesn't force you to read the Bible. He doesn't force you to pray. God believes in freedom. But this power forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Intolerance is the spirit of Antichrist. Wherever religious intolerance is found, there you find the Antichrist. And intolerance can be found in every religion. And if intolerance is found in your heart and my heart, this is the seat of the beast. In the last days, the Bible tells us democracy collapses, freedom goes down. There comes a great dictatorial system, a union of church and state. It enforces religious laws. It imposes upon the world persecution. Either you do this or else we will persecute you. Millions will fall into line because they follow the words of an apostate church instead of the words of God. This could happen in our day. As I thought about this last night, all that has gone on in the history of the world and these prophecies, I thought to myself, what should I personally do? What does my Father in heaven want me to do? I'm called by Jesus to love people, not hate them. I'm called as a minister to spread his gospel by loving persuasion, not by persecution. I'm called to be faithful unto death. I'm called by Jesus to forgive those people who do me harm. I'm called to be a peacemaker. I'm called above all, thing else, all things else to be a disciple of him who said, love your enemies. The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. Therefore, my great need is to have Jesus in my life. Would you kneel with me? Please. Our Father, we're grateful today that we live here in the United States of America, not in Saudi Arabia. We're glad that we don't live in Syria. But here we are in your church on the Lord's Day. We're not here because of coercion, but we're here because we love you. 
Help us to know today that not everything that we're told by the politically correct people is true. Help us to know that not all religions are the same. But help us to know that the only religion that can save the poor, sin-sick soul of man is the religion of Jesus. We thank you that the Christ of the cross was not a fiery prophet who led an army and carried swords. We thank you that our Christ, when he shed blood, it was his own on the cross when he gave himself for our sins. But he did not hurt a single solitary soul or go to somebody and say, unless you convert to my teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to chop off your head or I'm going to torture you. I'm going to throw you into the hands of the priests of the Inquisition. We thank you for the great love of God. Help us, dear Father, in our inadequate, incomplete way to be his disciples. Help us love people because you love us. Help us, dear Father, to be peacemakers and to love all people, whether they're Muslims or Roman Catholics or Protestants or whatever they are. Help us to love people and help us, dear Father, to decide in our hearts today that we will never, never coerce people to accept a system of beliefs. Help us, dear Father, to be your disciples. And the only weapon to yield is the weapon of love. We thank you today that you are called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Dear Lord, come into our hearts today as we're praying today in our church with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. How many today of their own free will will say, I want Jesus in my life. I thank you for dying for me, Jesus. I want you in my life today. Would you raise your hand if you can say that? I want you, Jesus, in my life today. Can you say that out loud? I want you, Jesus, in my life today. I want your love in my heart. Teach me to love others. Teach me to be your disciple. Please forgive me for all of my sins. For I've sinned against you. Wash away my sins and make me clean today. And at last, by grace alone, through faith alone, not because of my good deeds, grant me a place with Jesus in paradise. For Jesus' sake, amen and amen.